Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part Two The Wreath Chapter Five At Nonacetter, the days passed as they had before. Kristen spent her time in the dormitory in the church, the weaving room, the library, and the refectory. The nuns and the convent servants harvested the crops of the herb garden and the orchard. Holy Cross Day arrived in the fall with its procession, and then came the time of fasting before Michaelmas. Kristen was astonished that no one seemed to notice anything different about her, but she had always been quiet in the company of strangers, and Ingeborg Philippus' daughter, who was her companion day and night, managed to talk enough for both of them. So no one noticed that her thoughts were far away from everything around her. Erlon's mistress. She told herself this. Now she was Erlon's mistress. It was as if she had dreamed it all. The evening of St. Margareta's day, the time in the barn, the nights in her bedchamber at Skog. Either she had dreamed all that, or she was dreaming now. But one day she would have to wake up. One day it would all come out. Not for a moment did she doubt that she was carrying Erlon's child. But she couldn't really imagine what would happen to her when this came to light, whether she would be thrown into a dark cell or be sent home. Far off in the distance, she glimpsed the faint images of her father and mother. Then she would close her eyes, dizzy and sick, submerged by the imagined storm, trying to steel herself to bear the misfortune, which she thought would inevitably end with her being swept into Erlon's arms for all eternity the only place where she now felt she had a home. So in this sense of tension, there was just as much anticipation as there was terror. There was sweetness as well as anguish. She was unhappy, but she felt that her love for Erland was like a plant that had been sown inside her, and for every day that passed it sprouted a new and even lusher abundance of flowers in spite of her misery. She had experienced the last night that he had slept with her as a delicate and fleeting sweetness, and a passion and joy awaited her in his embrace, which she had never known before. Now she trembled at the memory. It felt to her like the hot, spicy gust from the sun-heated gardens. Wayside bastard. Those were the words that Inga had flung at her. She reached out for the words and held them tight. Wayside bastard a child that had been conceived in secret in the woods or meadows. She remembered the sunshine and the smell of the spruce trees in the glade. Every new trickling sensation, every quickened pulse in her body she took to be the unborn child, reminding her that now she had ventured onto new paths. And no matter how difficult they might be to follow, she was certain that in the end they would lead her to Erland. She sat between Ingeborg and Sister Ostrid, embroidering on the great tapestry with the knights and birds beneath the twining leaves. 
All the while she was thinking that she would run away once her condition could no longer be concealed. She would walk along the road, dressed as a poor woman, with all the gold and silver she owned knotted into a cloth in her hand. She would pay for a roof over her head at a farm somewhere in an isolated village. She would become a servant woman, carrying water buckets on a yoke across her shoulders. She would tend to the stables, do the baking and washing, and suffer curses because she refused to name the father of her child. Then Erland would come and find her. Sometimes she imagined that he would come too late. Snow white and beautiful, she would be lying in the poor peasant bed. Erland would lower his head as he stepped through the doorway. He was wearing the long black cape he had worn when he came to her on those nights at Skog. The farm woman had led him to the room where she lay. He sank down and took her cold hands in his, his eyes desperate with grief. Is this where you are, my only joy? Then, bowed with sorrow, he would leave, with his infant son pressed to his breast inside the folds of his cape. No, that's not how she wanted things to end. She didn't want to die, and Erland must not suffer such a sorrow. But she was so despondent, and it helped to think such things. Then, all of a sudden, it became chillingly clear to her. The child was not something she had merely imagined. It was something inevitable. One day she would have to answer for what she had done, and she felt as if her heart had stopped in terror. But after some time had passed, she realized it was not as certain as she had thought that she was with child. She didn't understand why this did not make her happy. It was as if she had been lying under a warm blanket, weeping. Now she had to get up and step into the cold. Another month passed, then another. Finally, she was convinced. She had escaped that misfortune. Freezing and empty, she now felt more unhappy than ever, and in her heart a tiny bitterness toward Erland was brewing. Advent was approaching, and she had not heard a word, either about him or from him. She had no idea where he was. And now she felt she could no longer endure the anguish and uncertainty. It was as if a bond between them had been broken. Now she was truly frightened. Something might happen, and she would never see him again. She was separated from everything she had been bound to in the past, and the bond between them was such a fragile one. She didn't think that he would forsake her, but so many things might happen. She couldn't imagine how she would be able to stand the day-to-day -day uncertainty and agony of this waiting time any longer. Sometimes she would think about her parents and sisters. She longed for them, but with the feeling that she had lost them for good. And occasionally, in church, and at other times as well, she would feel a fervent yearning to become part of it all, this community with God. It had always been part of her life, and now she stood outside with her unconfessed sin. She told herself that the separation from her home and family and Christianity was only temporary. But Erland would have to lead her back by the hand. When Lavrens consented to the love between her and Erland, then she would be able to go to her father as she had before, and after she and Erland were married, they would make confession and atone for their offense. She began looking for evidence that other people, like herself, were not without sin. She paid more attention to gossip, and she took note of all the little things around her which indicated that not even the sisters in the convent were completely holy and unworldly. 
There were only small things. Under Fru Groa's guidance, Nana Setter was, in the eyes of the outside world, exactly as a holy order of nuns ought to be. The nuns were zealous in their service to God, diligent and attentive to the poor and the sick. Confinement to the cloister was not so strictly enforced that the sisters could not receive visits from their friends and kinsmen in the parlatory, nor were they prevented from returning these visits in the town if the occasion so warranted. But no nun had ever brought shame upon the order through her actions in all the years that Fru Groa had been in charge. Kristen had now developed an alert ear for all the small disturbances within the convent's walls, little complaints and jealousies and vanities. Other than nursing, no nun would lend a hand with the rough housework. They all wanted to be learned and skilled women. Each one tried to outshine the other, and those sisters who did not have talent for such refined occupations gave up and drifted through the hours as if in a daze. Fru Groa herself was both learned and wise. She kept a vigilant eye on the conduct and industry of her spiritual daughters, but she paid little heed to the welfare of their souls. She had always been friendly and kind toward Kristen, and seemed to favor her above the other young daughters, but that was because Kristen was well-trained in book-learning and needlework, and was diligent and quiet. Fru Groa never expected replies from the sisters. On the other hand, she enjoyed talking to men. They came and went in her parlatory, landholders and envoys associated with the convent, predicant brothers from the bishop, and representatives from the cloister at Hovde, with which she was involved in a legal matter. She had her hands full tending to the convent's large estates, the accounts, sending out clerical garb, and taking in and then sending off books to be copied. Not even the most ill-tempered person could find anything improper about Fru Groa's behavior. She simply liked to talk about those things that women seldom knew anything about. The prior, who lived in a separate building north of the church, seemed to have no more will than the reed pen or switch of the abbess. Sister Potentia, for the most part, ruled the house. She was primarily intent on maintaining the customs that she had observed in the distinguished German convents where she had lived during her novitiate. Her former name was Sigrid Ronsveldtdatter, but she had changed her name when she assumed the habit of the order, as was the custom in other countries. She was also the one who had decided that the pupils who were only at Nonnesutter for a short time should also wear the attire of young novices. Sister Cecilia Bard's daughter was not like the other nuns. She walked around in silence, her eyes downcast. She always replied meekly and humbly, acted as everyone's maidservant, preferred to take on the roughest tasks, and fasted more often than was prescribed, as much as Fru Groa would allow. And in church, she would kneel for hours after the evening hymn, or go there long before matins. But one evening, after she had spent the whole day at the creek washing clothes along with two lay sisters, she suddenly began to sob loudly at the supper table. She threw herself onto the stone floor, crawled on her knees among the sisters, and then beat her breast. With burning cheeks and streaming tears, she begged them to forgive her. She was the worst sinner of them all. She had been stone-hard with arrogance all her days. It was arrogance and not humility or gratitude for the death of Christ the Savior that had sustained her when she was tempted in the world. She had fled to the convent not because she loved a man's soul, but because she had loved her own pride. 
She had served her sisters with arrogance. She had drunk vanity from her water goblet, and she had spread her bare bread thick with conceit while the sisters drank ale and ate butter on their bread. From all this, Kristen understood that not even Cecilia Bard's daughter was completely pure of heart. An unlit tallow candle that has hung from the ceiling and turned filthy with soot and cobwebs. That was how she compared her loveless chastity. Fru Groa herself went over and lifted up the sobbing young woman. Sternly, she said that as punishment for her outburst, Cecilia would move from the sister's dormitory into the abbess's own bed and stay there until she had recovered from this fever. And then, Sister Cecilia, you will sit in my chair for eight days. We will ask your advice in spiritual matters and show you such respect because of your godly conduct that you will grow sated from the tribute of sinful people. Then you must judge whether this is worth so much struggle and decide either to live by the rules as the rest of us do or continue the trials that no one demands of you. Then you can contemplate whether all the things that you say you do now so that we might look up to you, henceforward you will do out of love of God so that he might look upon you with mercy. And so it was. Sister Cecilia lay in the abbess's room for two weeks. She had a high fever, and Fru Groa nursed the nun herself. When she had recovered, for eight days she had to sit at the abbess's side in the place of honor both in church and at home and everyone served her. She wept the whole time, as if she were being beaten. Afterward, she was much gentler and happier. She continued to live in almost the same manner as before, but she would blush like a bride if anyone looked at her, whether she was sweeping the floor or walking alone to church. This episode with Sister Cecilia aroused in Kristen a strong yearning for peace and reconciliation with everything from which she had come to feel herself cut off. She thought about Brother Edvin, and one day she gathered her courage and asked Fru Groa for permission to visit the Barefoot Friars to see a friend of hers there. She could tell that Fru Groa was not pleased. There was little friendship between the Minorites and the other cloisters of the diocese, and the abbess was no more favorably disposed when she heard who Kristen's friend was. She said that this brother Edvin was an unreliable man of God, always roaming about the country seeking alms in other dioceses. In many places the peasantry considered him a holy man, but he didn't seem to realize that the first duty of a Franciscan monk was obedience to his superiors. He had heard the confessions of outlaws and those who had been excommunicated. He had baptized their children and sung them into their graves without asking for permission and yet his sin was as much due to lack of understanding as it was to defiance, and he had patiently borne the reprimands which had been imposed on him because of these matters. The church had treated him with forbearance because he was skilled at his craft, but even in the execution of his art he had come into conflict with others. The bishop's master painters in Bergen refused to allow him to work in their diocese. Kristen was bold enough to ask where this monk with the un-Norwegian name had come from. Fru Groa was in a mood to talk. She said that he was born in Oslo, but his father was an Englishman, Ricard the armor master, who had married a farmer's daughter from the Skogheim district, and they had taken up residence in Oslo. Two of Edvin's brothers were respected armorers in town, but Edvin, the eldest of the armor master's sons, had been a restless soul all his days. 
he had no doubt felt an attraction for the monastic life since early childhood. He had joined the Grey Monks at Hovde as soon as he reached the proper age. They sent him to Cloister in France to be educated. He had excellent abilities. From there he managed to win permission to leave the Cistercian Order and enter the Order of the Minorites instead. And when the brothers arbitrarily decided to build their church out in the fields to the east against the orders of the bishop, Brother Edvin had been one of the worst and most obstinate among them. He had even used a hammer to strike one of the men sent by the bishop to stop the work, and had almost killed him. It had been a long time since anyone had talked at such length with Kristen. When Fru Groa dismissed her, the young maiden bent down and kissed the abbess's hand respectfully and fervently, and tears sprang at once into her eyes. But Fru Groa, who saw that Kristen was crying, thought it was from sorrow, and so she said that perhaps one day she would be allowed to go out to visit Brother Edvin after all. And several days later, Kristen was told that some of the convent's servants had to go over to the king's castle, so at the same time they could accompany her out to the brothers in the fields. Brother Edvin was home. Kristen had not imagined that she would be so happy to see anyone other than Erland. The old man sat and stroked her hand as they talked, thanking her for coming. No, he hadn't been to her part of the country since that night he had stayed at Urengard, but he had heard that she was to marry, and he offered her his congratulations. Then Kristen asked him to go over to the church with her. They had to go out of the cloister and around to the main entrance. Brother Edvin didn't dare lead her across the courtyard. He seemed in general quite timid and afraid to do anything that might offend. He had grown terribly old, thought Kristen. And when she had placed her offering on the altar for the priest of the church, and then asked Edvin to hear her confession, he grew quite frightened. He didn't dare. He had been strictly forbidden to listen to confessions. Perhaps you've heard about it, he said. I didn't think that I could deny these poor souls the gifts that God had bestowed on me so freely, but I was supposed to exhort them to seek reconciliation at the proper place. Well, then. But you, Kristen, you will have to confess to the prior at the convent. There is something that I cannot confess to the prior, said Kristen. Do you think it would benefit you if you confess to me something that you wish to conceal from your proper confessor? said the monk more sternly. If you cannot hear my confession, said Kristen, then you can let me talk to you and ask your advice about what is on my mind. The monk looked around. The church was empty at the moment. He sat down on a chest that stood in the corner. You must remember that I cannot absolve you, but I will advise you, and I will keep silent as if you had spoken in confession. Kristen stood before him and said, you see, I cannot become Simondara's wife. As to this matter, you know I cannot advise you otherwise than the prior would, said Brother Edvin. Disobedient children bring God no joy, and your father has done his best for you. You must realize that. I don't know what your advice will be when you hear the rest, said Kristen. The situation is such that Simon is too good to gnaw on the bare branch from which another man has broken off the blossom. She looked directly at the monk, but when she met his eye and noticed how the dry, wrinkled old face suddenly changed and became filled with grief and horror, something seemed to break inside her 
The tears poured out, and she tried to throw herself to her knees. But Edvin pulled her vehemently back. No, no. Sit down here on the chest with me. I cannot hear your confession. He moved aside to make room for her. Kristen continued to cry. He stroked her hand and said softly, Do you remember that morning, Kristen, when I saw you for the first time on the stairs of Hamar Cathedral? I once heard a legend, when I was abroad, about a monk who could not believe that God loved all of us wretched, sinful souls. An angel came and touched his sight, so that he saw a stone at the bottom of the sea, and under the stone lived a blind, white, naked creature. And the monk stared at the creature, until he began to love it because it was so small and pitiful. When I saw you sitting there, so tiny and pitiful inside that huge stone building, then I thought it was reasonable that God should love someone like you. You were lovely and pure, and yet you needed protection and help. I thought I saw the whole church with you inside it, lying in the hand of God. Kristen said softly, We have bound ourselves to each other with the most solemn of oaths, and I have heard that such an agreement consecrates us before God just as much as if our parents had given us to each other. But the monk replied with despair, I see, Kristen, that someone has been telling you of the canonical law without fully understanding it. You could not promise yourself to this man without sinning against your parents. God placed them above you before you met him. And won't it also be a sorrow and a shame for this man's kinsmen if they learn that he has seduced the daughter of a man who has carried his shield with honor all these years? And you were also betrothed. I see that you do not think you have sinned so greatly, and yet you do not dare confess this to your parish priest. And if you think you are as good as married to this man, why don't you wear the linen wimple instead of going around bareheaded among the young maidens with whom you have so little in common now? For now your thoughts must be on other things than theirs are. I don't know what I'm thinking about, said Kristen wearily. It's true that all my thoughts are with this man, whom I yearn for. If it weren't for father and mother, then I would gladly pin up my hair on this very day. I wouldn't care if they called me a paramour, if only I could be called his. Do you know whether this man's intentions are such that you might be his with honor some day? asked Brother Edvin. Then Kristen told him everything that had happened between Erland Niklausen and herself, and as she talked she seemed to have forgotten that she had ever doubted the outcome of the whole matter. Don't you see, Brother Edvin, she continued, we couldn't control ourselves. God help me, if I met him here outside the church after I leave you, I would go with him if he asked me to. And you should know that I have now seen that other people have sinned as we have. When I was back home I couldn't understand how everything could have such power over the souls of people that they would forget all fear of sin. But now I have seen so much that if one cannot rectify the sins one has committed out of desire or anger, then heaven must be a desolate place. They say that you too once struck a man in anger. That's true, said the monk, and it is only through God's mercy that I am not called a murderer. That was many years ago. I was a young man back then, and I didn't think I could tolerate the injustice that the bishop wished to exercise against us poor brothers. King Hawken, he was the duke at that time, 
had given us the land for our building, but we were so poor that we had to do the work on our church ourselves, with the help of a few workmen who lent a hand more for their reward in heaven than for what we were able to pay them. Perhaps it was arrogance on the part of the mendicant monks that we wanted to build our church with such splendor, but we were as happy as children in the meadows, singing hymns as we chiseled and built walls and toiled. May God bless Brother Ranulf. He was a master builder, a skilled stonemason. I think God himself granted this man all his knowledge and skills. I was cutting altar pieces from stone back then. I had finished one of St. Clara, with the angels leading her to the church of St. Francis early Christmas morning. It had turned out beautifully, and we all rejoiced over it. Then those cowardly devils tore down the walls, and the stones toppled and crushed my altarpieces. I lunged at a man with a hammer. I couldn't control myself. Yes, I see that you're smiling, Kristen. But don't you realize how badly things stand with you now? For you would rather hear about other people's frailties than about the deeds of decent people which might serve as an example for you. As Kristen was about to leave, Brother Edvin said, It's not easy to advise you. If you were to do what's right, then you would bring sorrow to your parents and shame upon your entire lineage. But you must try to win release from your promise to Simon Andresen. Then you must wait patiently for the joy that God will send you. Do penance in your heart as best you can, and do not let this Erland tempt you to sin more often, but ask him lovingly to seek reconciliation with your kinsmen and with God. I cannot absolve you of your sin, said Brother Edvin as they parted, but I will pray for you with all my heart. Then he placed his thin old hands on Kristen's head and said a prayer of blessing and peace for her in farewell. <laughs> 